This is Fight Night, a new podcast from iHeartRadio. They thought he had robbed a deadliest man in this country. Guys who would not hesitate to blow your head off. This story from Atlanta, Georgia, has been reported for 50 years. But now, for the first time, you're going to hear what really happened from the people who lived it. Listen and follow Fight Night on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. For the week of April 9th, 2020, in New York, the number of coronavirus hospital admissions drops, but the number of deaths continues to grow. In politics, Bernie Sanders drops out of the presidential race, but still asks for voters to help his delegate count grow. And here at Politicon, we're dropping our sixth episode, coming to you from L.A., D.C., Denver, and Raleigh. And our collective anxiety is growing over this quarantine, and we're continuing to look for an answer to the question, how the heck are we going to get along? Hey, I'm Clay Aiken. We're back this week by the skin of our teeth. I must say, the challenges of, of doing this podcasting thing in isolation. I'm here in Raleigh. Uh, big thunderstorm just a little bit ago. All the power in the house went out for about an hour. Had nothing. Thought we were going to have to do this with a hamster and a wheel running my computer somehow. But we got the power back on just in time, thankfully, uh, so that I could be joined by a great panel again this week. A former Republican turned Democratic strategist Kurt Bardell is with us, author, activist, comic, and host of Coffee with Tim Black and Tim Black at Night. Guess his name, Tim Black. Writer, MSNBC contributor, and one of Forbes 30 under 30, Sure, Michael Singleton is with us, and I'm especially happy to have returning for us uh, Director of Outreach for Gun Owners of America, Antonia Okafor. How are you doing, Antonia? Doing well. It's been a week since we spoke. What have you done to what have you what have you been doing in Denver to to entertain yourself this week in quarantine? Yeah. Um nothing sexy. Definitely just sitting in the house. Uh like I said last time I'm pregnant, so you know, of course everyone is concerned for my safety, um, even more so. So yeah, I'm just sitting in the house. Nothing, nothing. You're not entertaining yourself with any specific Netflix show or anything? Oh, no. I just, after that whole uh, Tiger King talk you guys had last week, I made sure I definitely unsubscribed to Netflix. I wasn't even tempted. So, uh, yeah, yeah, not not doing that. Not doing that. Sure, Michael, are you watching? Did you watch Tiger King? What have you been entertaining? I did watch Tiger King, and it was one crazy show, but it was needed during this break because I'm having anxiety here, guys. But um, during the break, I've been spending a lot of time playing the piano. So I play the piano. I've been learning a lot of new Rachmaninoff pieces really? and actually ended up buying another piano. I had, I would have had three pianos. I gave one away to a friend who's a CNN commentator. 
I have one upright left and I have a six one grand that arrives next Friday. So that's what I've been doing. Really? That is very, well, lots, first of all, that's a lot to be having a piano delivered in the middle of a coronavirus quarantine. <laughs> is quite a, quite a, you got a lot, especially a grand piano. That's a whole bunch of lifestyle in the day. <laughs> Gotta wipe that thing down. But that's very zen. It's very, that's a good thing to be spending your time on is piano playing. Clay, it has been so rewarding, man. And and I'm playing some of uh, the more challenging Rachmaninoff pieces. Like I, I just started learning uh, Prelude in C minor. Uh, I'm working on a two de tableau, Opus 39. So some really complicated pieces, but they're so freaking rewarding. I feel so uncultured right now. <laughs> Tim, have you been playing your Brahms and your Strauss as well? Man, that's that's bad. That Sir Michael makes me feel really inadequate right now. This is bad. Damn, this guy's so cultured. Um, Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you make a human being, though? Oh, drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling insecure right now. So I- <laughs> after, after that, a little bit, Tim, what are you, uh, Tim, are you playing guitar or something? Maybe playing no, the spoons, anything? I'm watching Ozarks, man. I like Ozarks on Netflix and uh, basically trying to keep the kids in the house, man, which has been tough because 11 year old and the three year old, they, uh, they want to get outside. So yeah, really? Can you have your 11-year-old talk to mine? Because he doesn't want to do anything but play on YouTube <laughs> nonstop. I wish I could get him out of the house a little bit more. But that's, so that's impressive that they want to get out and play. Kurt, what about you? Are you out, are you out in the yard playing? Uh, I am not. I generally spend my free time. Uh, I have a complete separate side hustle. Uh, I have a country music media company. And so I spend a lot of my time uh, listening to music, watching videos, and interacting with a lot of the folks in Nashville. Oh, I feel I feel maybe a collaboration coming on here between Shermichael and Kurt. Uh, I don't know about Rachmaninoff. I don't know about Rachmaninoff. I am down, <laughs> Kurt. I am down. <laughs> there's got to be some sort of there's got to be some sort of way for you to play a little country on the piano and then get on Kurt's show. I'm I'm digging. That. Old Town Road, something, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to figure that out and come back to that. Next week, you better come back and play it for us. I feel a little bit boring um, myself because I have been watching, Antonia's not watching TV much. Sir Michael is uh, obviously far more cultured than me. Kurt, um, you've got a completely different thing. Tim, you and I are the only ones who are watching TV. Uh, it sounds like I've turned off the news. I have to say, I have to admit, I have really put myself on a news diet over the past few weeks because it tends to be so much of the same thing over and over. So I am going to get a little bit of my news from y'all this week, to be honest with you. But but generally, I mean, uh, are we doing better this week than we were last week? Do you think things are improving, not with the virus, but with the way perhaps that the government has been handling it? Anybody jump in? I mean, I'll jump in. I mean, I don't know. I mean, because look, Clay, this week people were expecting, small business owners were expecting to get some type of federal relief. Uh, from my perspective, I think it has been a complete disaster. The banks were not giving uh, given enough uh, instructions on how to properly regulate this process. 
uh, SBA, the initial um, $10,000 grant that they, that they were essentially a loan that they were essentially supposed to give the small businesses. I don't know any person who owns a small business that have actually received this. Uh, what about the $1,500 that people were expecting? There are a lot of things assistance-wise that people were expecting and they sort of need it now and they have not received it. I don't call that progress. I think we still have some issues that we need to iron out. Has anybody got their stimulus check on this? I'm sorry, but I, I think one of the things that really concern me about the turn that the last couple of days has taken is the president just completely purging oversight uh, and oversight over this $2 trillion that he wants to spend, uh, firing inspector generals. And, and the only reason why you get rid of a watchdog is because you don't want him doing his job. And I think that should concern everybody. And, and, and it kind of relates to what Michael was saying. If the money isn't being spent where it should be, actually helping small businesses, where's that money going? And when you have a president who throughout his entire tenure has not hesitated to commingle his finances, his businesses, his family enterprises with his job, th that's very concerning because really what you're doing when you get rid of these watchdogs is you're basically just making this money a slush fund for Donald Trump to dole out to whoever he wants with no oversight. And again, it's been this relentless crusade against checks and balances that's been going on from this president and I'll tell you, you know, I worked for the Republicans at the Oversight Committee when Barack Obama was in office. I was there when we oversaw the spending of the financial bailout and of the subsequent stimulus bill. If, if, if Barack Obama had done what Donald Trump did in the last couple of days, they would be crying bloody murder. There would be hearings. There would be investigations. Uh, it, it is incredibly concerning that inspectors general right now are being politicized this way and that the message that this president is sending to the inspector general community is if you do your job, if you weed out waste, fraud, abuse, mismanagement, corruption, you're going to get fired. Um, do, do, do we have enough bandwidth to care about that? I'm not asking if we should care about it, but I'm wondering, Tim, is this coronavirus crisis so front and center that things like Kurt just mentioned are not going to really get any attention from anyone? Well, only if it if it uh, impacts your life, right? So I think as a small business owner, for instance, I, I, I definitely can relate to what Mike was saying about uh, the, the, the lack of allocation of the funds. And I don't know anyone in this business that we have having my own media business. I applied for it and I'm, it, you get conflicting information everywhere you turn. But if that doesn't directly impact you, of course, I agree. You, you know, who, you know, you're not going to be so concerned with this. Like I have aging parents who I'm concerned with. My dad has a pre-existing condition. He called me today to make sure that everyone in the, in the family, because we can't see each other, has a protective gear, the PPE. And fortunately for him, he does have that. He's still venturing out to work. I got a brother who drives for Metro bus right here in the area, Michael, and um, they didn't have PPE. And five people on the job for Metro here in DC area came down with the virus. So now he's mm -hmm. off for the next month. So these are real life struggles in uh, turmoil that people are going through. I don't think that um, unless, like I said, unless it directly impacts you, that you're going to be too worried about it. Well, I want to I want to ask Antonio to get in here, too, because, I mean, that the same question I asked Tim a little bit. Is this a moment where we are so hyper focused on one particular issue? It, it monopolizes all of the news time that perhaps certain issues may concern you that are not being addressed? Well, when has that ever been really different <laughs> from any other time? Any cycle always dominates what we're going to hear and, and listen to and focus on. Um, unfortunately, uh, yeah, we still have lives that keep going on after even 
surpassing what coronavirus is, the effects of coronavirus. I mean, even in the Second Amendment community, um, one thing, I mean, one glimmer of hope is that we're seeing a lot of gun sales. We're seeing a lot of people take their Second Amendment rights very, very seriously. Uh, the Mar March sales that just went out, that over 2 million uh, people um actually bought firearms in the United States. And so I think part of that is, yeah, we're seeing a lot of panic and, of course, uncertainty. But we're also seeing, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, good responses from everyday citizens who are just going to take, you know, that power back somehow, um, whether that's buying a firearm so they can protect themselves because police are not able to come to them anymore um, in, a, in an efficient time. Or they're, you know, when it comes down to who knows what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks or months where we're going to have to maybe get our own food or whatever. I mean, I right. well, yeah, listen, I mean, that's uncertainty right now. That's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's very interesting because you're, you're right. I mean, gun sales have skyrocketed everybody. I mean, they, they, the, I've, I read somewhere more guns have been sold in the last, uh, week or two than were sold after Sandy hook. Um, and and we know that was a, a huge number then too. A toilet paper I can't find anywhere, and apparently you can't find a gun. People are really worried about their asses. Um, <laughs> what is cause? I mean, why why is there a rush to to buy a gun right now, Kurt? Because people are stupid. Uh, honest to go. God, the, the the idea that Why? going out people and buying a bunch of guns is going to do anything to help protect them from the coronavirus is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. Come you know, on, and, and, and again, the, the idea that guns make anybody safer is just a fallacy, and I, I can't for the life of me understand. And, and listen, I'm someone who you know. I feel very strongly about this issue. The, you know, my community, the country's community, was the victim of the largest mass shooting in the history of this country at Route 91 in Vegas. Uh, you know, I had a lot of friends there who went through that. You know, the way I found out about that was when the guy who runs Jason Aldean's label, the performer who was on stage when it happened, called me at midnight, worried that that, that I was there because I was scheduled to be there. Uh, you know, there is no reason why we have the volume of guns out there in this country. Wrapped around the idea that it's about some sort of constitutional Sir, right. Fallacy when you talk to the one million Americans every year who use firearms for self-defense, or the two hundred thousand yes, women is. who abuse firearms for self-defense. So that's a fallacy. You're going to tell another woman. You're going to tell me or other women that I talk to are the other people that I instruct, the women that are domestic violence victims who are sexual assault survivors like myself, who are single mothers who want to protect their children. You're going to tell those women that this is a fallacy to them, that this is not actually something that can actually protect them if they use it in an efficient and proficient way. You're tell I'm going to say I'm going to say that according to every statistic and common sense, having more guns creates more gun violence, and and that's just the way it is. Okay, well let me well, let me let me break well, it down for a second and ask because Antonia, I don't think is being has has said Kurt that people are buying guns to protect themselves from coronavirus. Obviously, no one thinks that it's <laughs> going to shoot. They're going to shoot the virus, but there is apparently, and sure, Michael, I want to get you in here. There is apparently some concern that we are you know, in this quarantine state, we're alone in our homes. As, as Antonia mentioned, people are, cops are not able to, to 
get to you as easily. They're dealing with other things that people are feeling more isolated and feel they need to protect themselves more now. Why is that a valid concern? I think it is a valid concern. I think people are concerned about potential civil unrest. And if you actually look at the analytics of the number of people that are buying these weapons that Antonia just cited, the 2 million, I believe, a significant percent of those individuals, percentage of those individuals are first time gun owners or people who never thought about buying a gun before in their lives until now. Uh, Now, look, I'm a gun owner. I own multiple guns. Uh, I love having my guns. I lost my father to gun violence. So I understand very well closely why some people despise having guns. But at the same time, I also understand why having a gun is important to have protection and security for yourself and also your family. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you are reasonable and responsible with your weapons. And most gun owners, most gun owners are reasonable and responsible individuals. Tim, are you worried about unrest? You know, you know, you got to think about it. I mean, the fact that, you know, we don't know how long this is going to be. Some people are forecasting we could be holed up in our homes pretty much for the next 18 months. And you watch your mouth. <laughs> I mean, how that's what I'm hearing, man. <laughs> you know, I do, I do a call-in radio show where people have been phoning in, and you you just imagine. So whether that's true or false, we're talking about the mind of the people, what they're thinking about when they're buying that gun. The people are envisioning that the, the, the end of the day is apocalypse now. I don't know, zombies, zombie apocalypse, that's the word. So when you look at it from that lens, yeah, I think I might need a weapon in the house just in case somebody wants to get a little froggy at three o'clock in the morning. I can't call Andy Griffith to come by to make sure I'm all good. So, but I think what Antonio was saying is that there are people buying guns for protection for their home. I don't think they're stockpiling weapons so much as they are the what if, the great what if. Right, but Antonio, what I don't get is why. What I don't get is why in this situation, the NRA is sending out national alerts to its millions of members warning that anti-gun extremists are going to pass gun control measures during the coronavirus and trying to incite people to go buy are. guns because Do they're worried really about that. Do you really not understand that, Kurt? Do you really not? You're a political strategist. You know full well that everybody takes advantage of these things when they can take advantage of them. It's called you've marketing. Raised money, you've raised money off of some things that didn't make no sense either. It's nothing to do with self-defense and worrying about your own personal safety. That's to do with the fact that the NRA is hemorrhaging money and they need people to be to be members as much as possible first of all nra is not the only gun organization in the world no it's the biggest one the most influential and impactful antonio needs to plug her gun organization go on girl (laughs) (laughs) talk to our members our two million members and ask them if they think the nra is doing an efficient job and if either way it doesn't matter the fact of the matter is is that it comes down to the individual citizens and people who have and by the way it's not even nra members or even republicans or people who love trump there are a lot of people from across the spectrum political ideological uh, spectrum who are buying guns who are first-time buyers so when you are telling people that they're stupid for going out to get some means of self-defense, which, yes, a firearm is the best way to do that because who knows, a criminal is going to use the same type of force in order to make sure that you are at a disadvantage. And so getting a firearm is the best way for them to be able to defend themselves. And also those people are able to defend themselves because the stores are open, because, you know, Trump, for example, has called for gun owners to know that gun stores and um, gun ranges are essential because lo and behold, the land actually guarantees you protection of right to keep their arms. So none of that should be something that you should be laughing. Okay, well let me let me play this out with you, Antonio, because you've got you've got 
two progressives on the call, or on the, I say call, two progressives on the podcast tonight. Um, Tim, Tim, and I know, right? I've ruined. I've completely removed the fourth wall here. <laughs> I've ruined it. Um, you've got you've got me and Tim both thinking. Wait a second. Hold on. Do I need to get a gun? Um, I am. I am a. I'm a. I own my bias. I'm a progressive, and I and I hear the. I don't want to use the word hysteria, but I hear the the speculation that if we're in for a long time, uh, people may begin to get a little more desperate and they may, may begin to start, you know, we might have riots, we might have, uh, you know, far less policing going on. And I think, okay, wait a second. Do, but doesn't it just then come down to who's the best shot? I mean, uh, maybe you're, maybe since you use your guns more often than I would, <laughs> you're a better shot than the criminal. But if everybody's got a gun, doesn't it just come down to who's got better aim? Well, it comes down to everybody who, uh, unfortunately, a lot of these people, if, by the way, they're even able to get their gun, definitely not a lot of people have found out that a lot of gun control is keeping them from getting their guns on in time when it comes to uh, background checks have been delayed uh, two to three days now. They're supposed to be, quote unquote, instant background checks. Uh, the fact that there's no ammo, particularly 9mm, which is a very um, entry-level type of uh, way people go into to having firearms or even firearms in general that are not available. I don't think that these people are not panicking. They are actually seeing a lot of gun control go into effect from governors, from mayors who are using these emergency powers to say that gun stores have to be closed down, to say that gun ranges are are not essential. And so those people can't go in train. Those people who are first-time buyers are, yeah, stuck with a firearm that they may have or may not have, and they have no ability to go and get their permit because well mm. most sheriffs are saying that they consider that an essential type of service right now so people can't even get their permits people can't go and get training people can't go and go to the range and practice so, as much as they can that's all things that have been in place beforehand but also has been um essentially exasperated from what is going on with COVID-19 with people who are mayors and governors using this crisis as a way Okay, but that's that. Let's let's be let's be fair a little bit though, because a lot of things have been shut down. A lot of people are out of their out out of jobs. Sure, Michael is uh, when everyone is dealing with having to wait longer for their Amazon packages. Wait, I mean, we all know that in a crisis like this, we are going to have to make some sacrifices. Is a gun store and getting your background checked, sure, Michael, an essential service that must be done in the that we cannot that we cannot sacrifice on at all. I mean, look, this is the way I interpret this. I believe that people need a couple of things. You need to have shelter. Uh, you need to have some form of health care. You need to have access to food. And yes, I do believe people need to have some form of protection to protect themselves. Again, I don't, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not a guy who thinks, oh, this is the end of the world. But I do wonder for individuals, particularly individuals who live in the most vulnerable communities where crime has traditionally been a problem, we know during moments of crisis that crime is exacerbated for a whole host of reasons. Yes, I am concerned that I want those individuals, the elderly in those communities, a single mom uh, in those communities to, if they want to, have a weapon legally, lawfully to protect themselves if that is necessary. And so, yes, I, I do believe that I would personally rank that among other critical things that are essential because it is a means for individuals to protect themselves, protect their property and protect their families. 
Okay, Tim, speaking of essential things, Tim, when you go out to the grocery store, are you wearing a mask? I do. I do. do. Look, it took me a long time to get it, though. I mean, I had to order it off Amazon, finally get a delivery. Um, (laughs) Did you get the real thing? Now now I have the real thing. It actually just came a couple days ago, but before that I had the t-shirt thing. There's a uh, a Dr. Van Wingen on on YouTube that uh, showed me how to make one. Also the Surgeon General put out a video. I'm sure you all saw that. So I was, you know, me and the wife were doing that for a while when we had to go out taking turns, you know, but uh, yeah, it's tough. And I think that 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 to me is more of a priority than having a gun. At this Kurt, point. are you wearing a mask right now? Or not right now, but are you wearing a mask when you go out? <laughs> right this moment. When I go, yeah. At, at, whenever I go out, uh, yeah, uh, th- at this point, you know, it's uh, why, why risk not wearing it? You know, it's kind of my, my thought right now. Well, the reason, the uh, reason I asked. I was, I was lucky because we actually had, uh, my wife and I, uh, two masks from a Halloween costume uh, from a few years ago. Uh, where we were uh, Sub Zero and Scorpion from Mortal Kombat, and <laughs> so that's the kind of mask you're wearing now. That's your help. That's your protection right now. That's, <laughs> that's right. Halloween that's not going to see anyone comes in trying to loot my house. They're going to see me as a Mortal Kombat person and run the you other way. Need a gun. You're going to scare the shit out of them. Is what you're like. That's right. Get over here. Mask though, is because we have, <laughs> <laughs> we have a question from a listener, um, Claire, who is in the epicenter, who's in New York City. Says, "Can we trust our heck?" health experts when they can't even make up their minds on masks. Uh, Kurt, how do you feel about the the messaging that's been coming out of this administration right now when it comes to uh, what we should be doing and, and how they are handling this crisis? Well, I think we have to separate what we hear from the administration and what we hear from healthcare professionals, uh, because they're not exactly one in the same. Uh, just the other day, the Inspector General for the Health and Human Services released a report where they went through and interviewed more than 340 hospitals throughout the country to get their opinion about how we were responding to this crisis. And the, the, the report that they came out with was incredibly troubling in terms of they didn't have the manpower, they don't have the, 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 the materials they need, uh, they're, they're completely overwhelmed. Uh, and this president labeled that report a fake dossier. So I, I think that it's, it's, it's really challenging when you have the healthcare professionals who I believe are saying one thing pretty unanimously, but the, po- the political side of this is saying something very differently. And you have a president who every day goes up to that podium for an hour to two hours and, and just flagrantly lies about the state of this crisis and the government response to it and tries to rewrite history every day. Um, you know, I, I, I err on the side of what the med- medical professionals say. Uh, I try to ignore the politicians. Uh, sure, Michael, people I mean, are saying, go in, jump no, on I, yeah, I was just going to say, look, I, I think, obviously, or at least personally, I should say, I, I don't think the president has handled this in its entirety very well. And I think anyone to say otherwise is just being disingenuous and blatantly lying. Uh, there are areas where he just has completely dismantled how I personally believe a leader should act in a moment of crisis. With that said, when I look at organizations like the CDC, when I do look at some medical experts that I have seen on national television, that I've read various columns, There was not one consistent message coming from the medical community a month ago, two months ago. Yes, everyone should wear a mask or no, people should not. It was, well, we don't think it's necessary. We think it should only be for people in hospitals. And I have to tell you, at that time, I remember uh, my girlfriend works in the medical field and she said, babe, do not listen. You need to go and buy masks now. And so I did because there, there, there was not a consistent message 
coming from medical experts. And I personally believe if they would have advised people a month or two ago to buy masks, I believe that we probably would have seen a decrease in the number of individuals who are infected and the number of individuals who are dying. I remember just two weeks ago, I was in a Walgreens going to buy something in Union Station because I was traveling through D.C., And an older African-American woman saw me with my mask on and she said, oh, my God, where did you buy that mask? I haven't been able to find one. And I said, I bought it several weeks ago. And I said, ma'am, why aren't you guys wearing masks in here? And she said, well, sir, Walgreens has told us we don't need them because Mm -hmm. the experts have said you don't need them. Imagine that. Didn't they also tell us, though, a few weeks ago that that if they weren't the N95 masks, that just wearing a piece of cloth over your face or or putting the eye mask over your mouth and nose was not going to really protect you from this virus. I mean, there were, there was messaging two or three weeks ago that said, these masks don't really protect you at all. You need to have an N95 mask if you want to protect yourself from any germs. Mm-hmm. And then just this week, we heard, okay, you can just wrap a bandana around your face or <laughs> stuff a sock in your mouth and if you want my, to. That's my point. That's my point, Clay. There's been so much inconsistencies as it pertains to our response here, not only from the White House, but also from the medical community and experts. And I have to tell you, when this is all said and done, when this is over, we are going to have a deep dive cleansing of all the failures here. And I got to be honest, the blame is not just with Trump. There's blame to go around with a lot of people here that put a lot of individual lives at stake because they could not all get on the same page. I agree. And I think the N95 mask, for instance, um, there's a big difference between that mask and a surgical mask and a bandana. And what we use was a T-shirt cut down by the sleeves or whatever. Um, It will protect you, but it will protect you from spreading the virus to others. But you can still catch it. So and that and the gloves and also wiping down your damn stern. Well, when you go out, there's so many things, the food that you order. I mean, all of the all of the uh, directives that I was getting were all over the place. I agree with everybody here as far as that. And if it wasn't for having access to the Internet, that's the mandatory thing. So you can get information that's mm-hmm. up to date. Mm-hmm. So, so on uh, as uh, the little bit of news that I have watched, we I try to avoid it because it's always the same. But there have been people who I've seen on TV, um, on social media, a few places, and academics, activists, ordinary Americans in general, who have expressed some fears that homemade masks like bandanas and whatnot might end up exacerbating racial profiling and put mm. black young black men and young Latino men in more danger. Um, is is this a valid concern or are we running out of things to talk about? No, I think that, well, I'm actually more concerned with the fact that we're dying at such a higher rate than our counterparts, our white and Latino counterparts. That's more of a concern. I've been covering that extensively on my show. Um, you know, just because of the uh, pre-existing conditions that many people in the black community have based on the fact of food deserts, uh, um, not having the medical attention that we need, diabetes, mm-hmm. heart disease, all these things, asthma, based also from the environmental injustice that we have, what we deal with. So now it's all exasperated. All of us exposed. Um, Am I worried about the police seeing me with a mask? You know, it, you know. actually, it did bother me when I had to go to the draft. I was kind of wondering, like, are they worried about me? I mean, I'm an older black guy, but I'm still black. So <laughs> I was kind of concerned. But that's not the first thing I'm thinking about, Clay. But, yeah, it does linger in your mind as, as far well, as I'm, that. I'm glad, I'm glad I've given you something else to worry about now with bringing that up. You're welcome. But, but, do, but you, yes, we have seen, we have seen that, that the effects of coronavirus, of COVID-19, the the... 
um, fatality rate is a lot higher amongst minority communities. Mm-hmm. Antonia, I don't think anyone has claimed that this is because of some medical evidence. Is it? Is it possible and likely that it's because of uh, lack of access to health care in certain communities? Um, or is it because people in uh, people in minorities tend to live in more urban areas? What what do we think the reason is? And should something specifically be done about it um, to specifically protect that minority community that's seeing a higher percentage of, of infections and death? I think it's definitely more of a socioeconomic issue um, when it comes down to why it, I wouldn't say, obviously, the the virus is not targeting African-Americans and Latinos and et cetera. Um, But yeah, that they are usually in those areas that one, our people have to keep working and they don't have the means of transportation. So they're usually in places that they have to be closer to other people. Um, maybe even in the same apartment, maybe in the same house. I mean, we saw a lot of that um, also in Italy with that issue alone. But then also the fact that, yeah, a lot of people don't have access to affordable health care, you know, even insurance. I mean, that's one of the things that you're going to let go when you're in a crisis where you don't have you don't have a paycheck coming in and you're looking at other things in order to survive. So I think all of that um, is really what it really comes down to the socioeconomic mm-hmm. aspect of things. Yeah, no, this, I, this, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Clay, I mean, I, I agree at 100% with Antonia and, and this is, you have a lot of African-Americans who work in service industries, you know, people say, well, why can't you work at home? A lot of those work at home jobs are typically people who are working in offices uh, we also know, as uh, Tim pointed out, you have food deserts. We also know that African-Americans have an access to appropriate uh, health care. We're disproportionately impacted. Have an access to good food. We're disproportionately uh, impacted. And so when you take all of, all of the ills that all automatically impact African-Americans and you place those things inside of a national pandemic, then you can guarantee that our numbers are going to be worse than everyone else. And so with this points and highlights, and I hope this is something that we don't forget when this moment passes, is that there are some significant discrepancies that pertain to basic things like health that we need to address in this country. And this is, when it comes to health care, I'm a, I'm a little bit different than a lot of my Republican colleagues on how we should address this. I just don't think this is something that people should have to worry about. And I don't, and I'm not saying I want Medicare for all or whatever. That's not what I'm saying as a conservative. But what I am saying is that we have a system that is not working. No one should have to fear if I have to go to work to provide for my family, am I going to have to worry five or six days from now that I may be infected with the coronavirus and die and leave my kids with no one to take care of them? That's a problem. I mean, anytime that we have a situation where uh, a crisis hits uh, and a widespread uh, uh, impacted population, it's always the people that were already struggling before the crisis Mm -hmm. who get impacted the most. And it's in these situations that we see uh, our government's failures. And and this isn't meant to be a person thing. The the issues that we're talking about right now of income inequality, health care, affordable housing, the you know, living wage. These have been issues that have been going on for decades in this country mm-hmm. uh, under both Democrat and Republican watch. And it's oh, and, and it's because of our inability to address those issues and make enough progress that when these crisis situations hit, it's those communities that are most disproportionately hit because the infrastructure just isn't in place 
to make sure that they have the care that they need, to make sure that they have the resources to, to, to you know, make their rent, to feed their families. Uh, they don't have the luxury of a job that allows them to work remotely. Uh, so many of them are in these service industries. Uh, when we go to the grocery store, you know, you notice there's still groceries on the shelf and they're getting restocked. Well, that's happening by human beings who are putting them there and working there while the rest of us and the majority of us have the luxury of being able to do what we do professionally from home in a, in a safe place. These communities don't have that, and you know, it's always in this type of situation that uh, the failings of our policies are exacerbated, and these communities are hit hard, hit the hardest. I just want to add that there are some people who were spreading some stupid conspiracy theories that black people couldn't even catch the COVID-19, that, mm-hmm. that this was something that was only targeted to white Americans for some reason. Um, so that's also something to throw in there just to people who just have just disdain for government, this lack of trust in their government. And as, as Kurt just alluded to, man, there's, there's just people who are on the bottom always get it the worst. Mm-hmm. There's a saying in the black community, when white people get a cold, black people get pneumonia. And, uh, it looks like when, it looks like we got the COVID-19 is what's happening. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, I'm sure I don't know the stats on Native American folks. I got my indigenous people who uh, who wrote me last week. They were like, Tim, what about us? Um, you know, we're, you know, poverty rate for um, Native Americans is, is even higher than black Americans. Incarceration levels even higher, even higher. I watched a tape about Rikers Island and there's so much to talk right, about. Right. I know we can't cover it all, but, um, we're all impacted. And I think that's the thing. We, we this is right now a test of will and stamina. And I just hope that all all of us, everyone, all of us survive this. Um, you know, people don't. People always get upset when you politicize something like this. We're all in this together, obviously, and we all are at risk of catching this horrible disease. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, it's almost as if, though, sometimes it, to me, it looks like you have to politicize these things. We have tended to be a very reactionary country. Um, most, a lot of the, a lot of the laws and the the big systemic change has been reactionary. Um, whether you talk about any sorts of gun control, sorry, Antonia, any sorts of gun control, they tend to come about after there's been a shooting, um, not to go back down that rabbit hole. But, but is this the time when we're talking about some of these things that Tim, you and Kurt just brought up when it, when it comes to um, inequities and inequalities between uh, socioeconomic levels and race, is this the time to, to pinpoint those problems when people, I mean, sure, Michael, not to call you out. I know you did not say that you're for universal health care. I'm not going to put that on your mouth. You didn't, he didn't, say, <laughs> he did not say that, but you probably, but you probably came closer to talking about healthcare mm-hmm. than you might have before this issue. Is this the time that, that we should be trying to make some of those changes, Kurt? Well, I mean, I think it's interesting because I always said when I worked on Capitol Hill, the government does two things, uh, nothing and overreact. And I feel like, you know, look at all the money that's being spent right now. Uh, you know, all of the, the last three years, how hard it's been to get anything really through Congress and signed by the president. And now all of a sudden we're passing one, two, or I think we're going to be on our third, uh, you know, bailout stimulus bill, uh, you know, trillions of dollars being spent. And right now they're just in, in stop the bleeding mode really it is, it, you know, it's kind of all hands on deck. You know, we need to stop the bleeding, keep the economy going, uh, you know, stay off the worst case scenario, but there's going to come a moment 
when we get through this part, when social distancing is, is, is relaxed and we're able to go about and try to return to some semblance of normalcy, where, and Shermichael talked about this, there is going to be a thorough examination of how we respond to this crisis at every level of government, uh, federal, state, local. And we're going to look at when we have all the data of who got sick and who didn't make it, and, and what, what that data will reveal is what we've seen so far, this pattern that minorities were disproportionately hit by this and disproportionately uh, had a higher mortality rate than everybody else. Uh, and and the, the, the question is going to be asked, well, why is that? And what can we do to, to make sure that if and when something like this happens again, uh, you know, we are better prepared? I mean, and, let, and let's be honest. It may not be a pandemic like this, but there's going to be a hurricane. There's going to be a tornado. There's right, going to be a wildfire. Something's. You know, listen, I'm, I understand, and I tend to be, again, I'm try to own my bias here, but I tend to be a little bit more of a pragmatic progressive, um, and, and I appreciate that tactic to let's get through this and then look at it. But I can't help after doing so many of these uh, podcasts over the last few weeks during when we've all been talking about the same thing. I can't help but think, even trying to be pragmatic, that I've listened to several conservatives. Sure, Michael, you're not the first one who's who's mentioned something that's teetered closer to healthcare than than conservatives have in the past. I can't help but have to ask, Sure, Michael, do you think that conservatives would be more apt to address some of these healthcare concerns? right now or in 10 months when there's not the pressure of a pandemic on them? I mean, to be honest, as someone who's worked for a lot of politicians and candidates, getting them elected and reelected, I would say they are more likely to react now. Uh, and I say right. that because a lot of, if, if you look at the, the demographic breakdown of a lot of Republican-based voters, you're looking at very rural individuals, you're looking at individuals who uh, who make a, I don't want to say b- below the poverty line, although some are, they're at least right above the poverty line, but not by much. And, and, I, and I'm pointing out, I'm highlighting these things to say that these are individuals who, if you look at the data, most doctors and scientists would say they're more susceptible to being infected by coronavirus for a whole host of different reasons. And so when you have your very constituents saying, we have a problem, you guys need to react, you're more likely to react than you would during a normal time. And so, Clay, to answer your question, absolutely. And so, and, and I think we have to, Clay. I mean, you, you know, we've politicized this enough. We, we really have, man. And, and, and I know there's a time and place for everything, Clay, but, but this moment is pointing out a lot of flaws within our system, flaws that I personally believe we can fix by working in a bipartisan, collaborative way. Everyone's not going to get what they want, but we damn surely have to make it better, particularly for the people who need it most. Man, I'm going to be okay. I'm not worried about me, but I'm worried about some of my family members in New Orleans who are not going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And so well, then people... A- Go ahead, Antonia. Well, that, but that, I think that's the problem right there is, is saying that obviously Republicans care about health care and making sure it's affordable. Like I've said before, it really comes down to the difference of how we get there. We think that, you know, at the end of the day, we're trying to make actual health care affordable. Did the Affordable Care Act do that? No. In fact, we saw the opposite effect. We saw people, people's premiums go up. And so it's really down to a lot of people thinking we have to do something, we have to do something, and that the government is the only source in order for us to do something. Well, there are other ways that we could actually attack the issue where we're actually going into the source of what is the root issue 
it's actual healthcare being too unaffordable for, for most people. So many people, so many people are getting pushed out. I guess maybe I'm not, I'm not trying to argue how it should be done, but my point and or the question that I was asking to see if anybody agreed with me or not was, is this the moment that is going to push both sides out of their respective corners. I mean, it should, it should, it should Clay, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, once again, people falling into their silos about, uh, I don't know. I'm feeling like I'm getting talking points about it. Um, Antonio, um, look, it's not about the government. We, it's not like I'm clamoring around going, Ooh, I just want the government to run something for me. I want the government to take over my healthcare. No, the problem is, as long as you attack profit, you attach profit to a service, the price goes up. So that's where the Medicare for all solution becomes reasonable when you think about well how can we keep them from making money off of it we can't have people being able to mark up healthcare like you can mark up a t-shirt or a, a, you know a carton of milk and that's what's happening and as long as there's a profit center in the in the insurance industry people are going to take advantage of it we know that so the issue with that is that the people who are actually providing that service they have to get paid and well, that's part no, of it. There's they, absolutely, there's absolutely a lot of corruption when it comes to the healthcare industry, and of course, you know, a lot of places that can definitely be um, slimmed down when it comes to their budgets and etc. But at the end of the day, yes, we do have people who are providing that service, so of course, we have to put that into the equation. And Antonio, a lot of people would. A lot of people might make the argument that teachers are providing a really important service, and so they have to be paid also. And we do pay them for that, but we do it a different way. So no one, I think, is disagreeing with what right. you are saying, Antonia. I don't think anybody wants those folks to not get paid. But if we can all agree on that and then pull out of our corners because of coronavirus and because of this mm-hmm. tragedy that we're all in together, then... What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. This Halloween, listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. Soundtracks available on Spotify or wherever you stream your music. But I mean, like, everybody's got a podcast these days. But what would I know? I'm Satan, for God's sakes. Don't even get me started. Why did wax replicants crowd an Italian church? And what do wax organs tell us about the history of medicine? Why does the Minotaur still intrigue us? And why would its bovine mouth crave human flesh? Hi, I'm Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Join us on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast for the entire month of October as we take our annual descent into a host of bloody, monstrous, and terrifying topics. 
from forest spirits that beckon you off the path to wax sculptors on a rampage, we'll be looking at spooky subjects all this month to peel away the flesh and reveal the underlying science and history and leave you with an even richer understanding of a world that's always weirder than we can imagine. What sorts of scientific concepts can we glean from episodes of The Outer Limits or Tales from the Dark Side? And what's the ghastly history and promising future of blood substitutes? Join us to find out. New Halloween-themed episodes publish twice a week, with older Vault episodes re-entering the world on Saturdays to spread around some of last year's grisly offerings. Listen to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting to here, Tim, is Bernie dropped out today. Um, and Bernie, the arguments, one of the biggest arguments that Bernie has been making for the past uh, two decades, but especially in his campaigns, was universal health care. And while he made the argument that he was not going to be able to win this primary, um, he is certainly trying to win a enough delegates to influence the uh the platform at the right. convention is this the moment for he and his movement to be making that argument yeah amazingly donald trump is you know tacking more to the left than most of the democratic party on this issue and bernie's this is a moment i they like to say that for every moment you know the, you know that the, there comes a time when when you were right you know, so this is the time right now where Bernie's policy is just right for the moment. And that's what's making this so, uh, in my opinion, it, it's, it's so urgent right now because of the COVID-19, but it's always existed. Um, the, I, I, you know, it hits me very hard that Bernie dropped out today. I feel like this is the time for us to push for Medicare for all. So we got to continue that push. And it's like I said, it's, it's just about detaching medical coverage from your job. When we got millions of people who just lost their jobs, Guess what? They lost their health care. And the disconnection we talked earlier about what's covered, what's not covered, what works, what doesn't work as far as, um, you know, protecting yourself from the virus. We got people who say, well, the test is covered if you get the COVID-19 test, but uh, is the treatment covered? Right. So we got people at home trying to decide, hey, I, do I have a flu or do I just have a cold? Let me just stay home. And by the time they go in, they're in dire straits and it's almost unimaginable the positions we're putting people in because of finances so once again we have to separate the two well i want to ask kurt i want to ask kurt specifically Mm -hmm. and then you respond to him too should joe biden start embracing more full-throatedly some of those positions that bernie uh has been espousing before he dropped out no, because the reality is, and, and we have we've had primary elections. The voters have weighed in in the Democratic Party, and it's very clear that they wanted Biden's way more than they wanted Bernie's way. That's why he's the front runner. That's did why he got Biden's more votes. Way, or did they believe that Biden's way would be more successful against Trump? There you go. Well, well, well either way, to be the, clear, the, the, the I was a Biden still, supporter so, from the beginning. So I, 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 but I want. I think it's only fair to say I think a lot of people supported Biden because they knew that he was the best chance Democrats had against Trump. Not 
That's and, the, and, and the reason why he's perceived to be the best chance is because his positions better align with the electorate. So if he goes so far to the left right now, what does that do? Does that jeopardize his chances of winning in November? Which at this point, frankly, is all that really matters. Because but, but did he? But but Biden Biden didn't Biden didn't endorse. I mean, sorry, Bernie didn't endorse him when he dropped out. He said he was a very decent guy, um, but he uh, he didn't come out and help him. And I mean, I, I gotta say. I, I, like I said, I've been a Biden supporter since 2008 in his primary. I love Joe Biden. I'm, I'm very happy personally that he's the nominee. But Kurt, you're the first Democrat on this podcast in three weeks who has been happy about Joe Biden being the nominee. In the last two weeks, both of the liberals on the panel or both of the Democrats on the panel have been underwhelmed by Biden. And I have asked the Republicans on the panel the same thing that I'll ask Michael and Antonia. Does that not make you happy that Joe Biden is the nominee when you see so many Democrats who are meh on Joe Biden, Michael? I mean, look, personally, I like Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden is an honorable man. I think as someone who grew up in the South, who grew up in the church, uh, I personally believe that Joe Biden would have been one of my grandparents' older neighbors. And so I personally don't have any issues with him. And, and I think a lot of Democrats or a lot of progressives, I should say, who are to the left of Joe Biden, need to understand that change does not happen overnight. And <laughs> as it pertains, and I know Tim may disagree, and, and I think Tim raised valid points about health care. I also think Antonia raised valid points about health care. I personally don't think you can have an extreme on either side. I think it has to be a combination of the two. I think that is, the, I think that's the most practical approach to trying to cover the most people of trying to make all sides as happy as one possibly can be. But this notion that you just go and disrupt, destroy every single thing is going to lead to some type of uh, amazing future is something that I don't buy into because from my position, Donald Trump disrupted and destroyed and look where that has gotten us. Clay, we, we're not very happy in my position. I don't think the morale of the country is in a good position. And so I don't think you need that type of extremism on the other side. So, Antonia, you were on last week. You were on last week, Antonia. Sally Cohn was on last week, uh, uh, progressive. Um, Aida was on. Aida Rodriguez was on. You were here when both of the Democrats were just really down on Joe Biden. Um, now he's the nominee. I, I want you to get in everything you had to, you wanted to say, but I just wanted to get your reaction to the fact that that Democrats in general have not been thrilled. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, this disclaimer here. Uh, I'm absolutely in no way um, a fan of Bernie's ideology at all. Um, I do think that the people who um, have been his followers are absolutely very. Um, genuine and they believe that the principles that he espouses are, you know, actually going to work and they're very important to them. Um, but let's give credit where credit is due here. There's a reason why the platform is way more to the left than it was when we were looking at 2016 or, or even before that. Mm -hmm. It is because of Bernie. Bernie had an influence. Um, people were talking about universal health care and so many other things that I know were things that people thought were egregious in the Democratic Party, which I was used to be a Democrat. Um, so this is absolutely a loss for Bernie people, but know that they definitely absolutely put in, had their influence in this election and will continue to do so because I know that Joe Biden is going to probably implement a lot of what the progressive movement really wants. I just want to point out something real quick. 
you know, we had an election in 2018 that saw 40 Republicans lose their seats in the House that gave the Democrats the majority. None of the candidates who won those seats, who took Republican seats, ran on Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. So we already know what a winning what a winning platform looks like to the electorate. We have that data. We have that point. Why in the world would any Democrat who actually wants to beat Donald Trump would want to embrace something that takes us away from that path? Uh, that 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 is beyond me. Because at the end of the day, the only thing that matters to me is beating Donald Trump. So, Tim, I want to set – Bernie has dropped out. I want to give you an opportunity to have a benediction here. Um, but but I, I got to say, again, I've, I've, I've owned my support of Joe Biden personally. I'm very happy that he's the nominee. But in fairness to Bernie Sanders and his supporters um, and, and to some of the arguments that, Tim, you have made and, and have made over the past weeks – it's interesting to me that the first time that we've had anyone on the show in the past three weeks be complimentary to Joe Biden, other than me, um, it has been tonight, and the compliments have come from a, a, an avowed Republican and a former Republican. Um, and so, does that not concern you, Tim, or does it make your argument that, uh, listen, Joe Biden is not going to be able to, is not going to be able to bring the Democratic Party along with him, or do you think that that Bernie supporters will get on board with Joe Biden before November? Uh, uh, well, I can I can answer that question probably like this. <clears throat> the major criticism that Bernie Sanders received is that he didn't go harder at Joe Biden, that he did not unearth the same talking points that Trump is going to use against Joe Biden. To me, Joe Biden is a not a strong candidate at all. And that's evidenced by the fact that most people that support Joe Biden, even though they like Joe Biden, they keep saying he's a decent guy. I never met him to know if he's a decent guy. Um, when he tells people he catch me outside and we could do a push up contest, that doesn't extract, strike me as being <laughs> endearing and warm. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I'll tell you. I think, I think a lot of people see Joe Biden. But, I think a lot of people see Joe Biden as a return to a more civil uh, time in yeah, politics where, right. where I, you would typically stand back in the middle of a crisis and not politicize it but is that the is this it's 2020 now i would love to see that civility in politics i would love to see it out of the way but do but you mean now is this the wrong time for that? <laughs> yeah, Clay, do you mean a civility where we saw the worst income inequality occur under his watch, where we went from two to seven wars under his tenure with Barack Obama? Like, is that what we're talking about? No, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking <laughs> not about, about that. I'm talking stuff. about the fact where, where Democrats and Republicans were... Listen, Joe Biden just had a conversation with Donald Trump this week, and even Donald Trump said it was a nice, respectful conversation. And to me, I see that as, oh, you know what? I appreciate the fact that Joe Biden is not trying to politicize this, not trying to attack the president while he's trying to do something else. But I also have to recognize, wait a second, it's 2020. Is that is that idealized idea of civility and politics? Is it too late for that? Is it is this not the time? Should should I be wishing for Joe Biden it, to to go for the jugular? The energy in the in the Democratic Party is on the left. If uh, Joe Biden hopes to harness any of that energy to actually defeat Donald Trump, I would wish for him to adopt adopt some of the policies that we ran on. But evidence that Sir Michael and Kurt uh, they don't see that as a being a feasible approach for Joe Biden, and he I don't think he will. So. 
so I don't think I don't think that Joe Biden, honestly, guys, I don't think he has a chance against Donald Trump. Donald Trump also tweeted out just today that look what they did. They they all panned against Bernie Sanders. They stabbed him in the back and they're going to be using that. And there's going to be a number of people who are going to listen to it and they're going to stay home. They're going to be disaffected. Apathy sets in and there goes your momentum. There is no Joe Mentum without the, the, the left, the strong vocal yeah. left. I want to I, 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 I move on to I want to move on to our quick fire round okay, in just a second. Okay. But I want to give Sher Michael the last yeah, word on this, and I want to ask you in, in, to lead into letting you say that. Doug Jones in Alabama um, voted completely against the way that his normal Alabama senator might vote in the impeachment. He convicted the president, and I think a lot of people calculate realize that he calculated. Listen, if you're someone who is a voter in Alabama and you want a person who is going to support Donald Trump, it's not going to matter whether I vote to, to acquit him in this in this impeachment or not. You're not going to vote for me as the Democrat. Mm-hmm. Is Joe Biden going to have the same problem, sure, Michael, or will Republicans vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump? I mean, look, I, I think you have a, a sliver of moderate-leaning Republicans who would vote for Joe Biden. And I'm basing this analysis off of the 2018 midterm exit results. I think if you look at the suburbs where Republicans have maintained a lock code for about two decades, we lost in 2018. You, you look at where Democrats did well, as Kurt pointed out, it wasn't the AOCs of the world that gave them their majority. It was moderate, centrist-leaning Democrats running against Republicans, okay? And I can tell you as a Republican who communicates with my friends at the RNC, who communicates with friends on Trump's re-election campaign, they are concerned that when you look at the demographics, and I'm not talking about just the racial demographics, when you, when you look at where Republicans have seeded losses of, of significant groups to Democrats, that Donald Trump does not have an ability to pull those people the way he did in 2016 against Hillary Clinton, because whether you like Biden or not, the dynamics that impacted Clinton just don't exist with Joe Biden. And, and you, and, and we saw that when you look at how well he performed during the, performed thus far in the Democratic primary. Look at the numbers. We didn't. We saw numbers higher than the primary with Hillary Clinton against Bernie Sanders. You saw Obama era numbers. Now I'm a strategist. I look at the data. This is in my opinion. Data doesn't lie. The numbers don't lie. And so I would say to my friends who are progressives, who are Democrats, if you guys truly want to win, look at the recipe that led to a victory in 2018 and repeat that for November. And I guarantee you, you will have a very good likelihood of defeating President Trump. Would you vote for him, Michael? Would I vote for Donald Trump? For Joe Biden. Oh, of course I'd vote for Joe Biden. I I don't, I'm I'm not, for for me, being a conservative is more than just, I'm a Republican. Just like I would argue folks who are progressives would probably say being a progressive is more than just being a Democrat. It is a disposition. It is a way of life. It is your values, your belief systems. And for Mm -hmm. me personally, and all of my Republican friends know this, I don't think that President Trump is always in sync with those things. Now, are there some things where I can say, oh, you know, I like that? Sure. I can point to one or two things. But but overall, in totality, I, I don't see that. And so would I vote for Joe Biden? Sure. I'm not going to say who I would vote for come November, but I'm not opposed to voting for him. Absolutely not. <laughs> 
Well, there you go. There you go, Tim. So you might he, we might have lost somebody on the far left, but we might have also gained Sher Michael. So there's a there's a chance still that Joe Biden could pull it off by appealing to people in the middle. Um, I want to wow. move on to our uh, quick fire round, which is we're going to take some questions from the audience uh, from our listeners that don't don't necessarily apply. They might apply to what um, is the topics of the day are, but um, they don't always necessarily apply. I'm just going to throw one at each of you. Um, Hunter from Jacksonville asks Antonio. I'll give this one to you. It feels like things will never be the same. What radical changes do you anticipate coming up? Antonia? Hmm. That's a good one. Um, well, yeah, things are not the same right now. They're not the same. Um, I know that we're talking about several people, like this is their first, a lot of, not me, um, definitely a lot of younger people who this is their first big major life changing event. Um, and it's not just America, which a lot of these issues have been in the past, like nine 11 and, and et cetera. It's, this is a worldwide issue and, um, crisis. And so, Absolutely, things are going to be are going to change. Are they going to change for the better? That's what I'm really concerned about. Where people are just literally just throwing their rights and their freedoms um, and laying them down, and and allowing government to just take over in so many different facets of their own life. Of thinking that it's only going to be a temporary type of uh, fix for this crisis, but we've seen time and time again that that's not what history shows. And so, absolutely, I'm going to we are going to see a a radical shift somewhere, but I'm kind of concerned it's not going to be going uh, the right way. Kurt Riley from Wichita asks, is big media responsible for what's tearing us apart? Uh, they are absolutely culpable in it. Um, you know, whether, you know, no matter what you feel about Donald Good Trump. all your answer. Not responsible, but culpable, yeah? They're culpable. I mean, you know, you look at the amount of what, what gives... What, what gives people opportunities to go on the media? It's being outrageous. It's being bombastic. It's being controversial. It's being polarizing. That, that's what you see on TV all day. You don't see reasonable discourse. You don't see people who are looking for compromise and looking for the better virtues in the other side. That doesn't get ratings. That doesn't get airtime. That doesn't go viral on social media. Uh, and so it's kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy. You look at the amount of free media, frankly, that the media gave Donald Trump in the 2016 election, uh, you know, because he, it was the best show on television. And even the airing of these press briefings every day, uh, there are those who would say that you're just giving the guy another free media platform because it's somewhat entertainment. And when, when, when you play that role and, and you're the arbiter of who gets visibility and who doesn't and what voices get promoted and who, and who doesn't, uh, you, you share responsibility for the outcomes. That was almost the very... That was almost the very perfect segue. Um, so I'm going to throw the next for the next question. I'm going to throw it to Sir Michael. Um, Connor from Miami asks, "Why are so many people saying that we shouldn't air President Trump?" I mean, look, I think people are concerned about inconsistencies and I and I and, and spreading mistruths. And I don't think, I mean, heck, I know Republicans who support the president who will acknowledge the guy just isn't always truthful. And in a moment where telling the truth, where accurate and factual information is of the utmost importance, where it could save people's lives, I, I, I don't think you want to air stuff that you know is counterintuitive to, to that mission. And so when the president or any leader, Republican or Democrat, this just isn't Trump, but any leader 
is saying are saying things that we know to not be accurate, to not be truthful. We should not put that garbage in front of the American people. As Kurt just talked about the, the media being culpable, I think a lot of individuals in the media should be blamed for our current situation. I'm just going to be frank about it. I'm on in, on television all the time. I think there are people who, who share some blame and the chaos that we have today. Now, the question is, now that we know it exists, what are we going to do to better it? And I think a part of bettering it is assuring that if you're going to be an individual in leadership and you're going to address the American people, you need to tell the hardcore truth, no matter how difficult it may be. And if you do not, then we're going to diminish your platform. Okay. Um, and, and the last of the individual quick fires I'm going to give to you, Tim. Um, I'm assuming that this has some, this is a coronavirus related question, but Layla from Los Angeles says, is what's good for New York City good for the country? Uh, you, you, I hope she's not referring to Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> 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 the guy cut Medicaid, Medicaid during the pandemic. Um, look, guys, uh, I, I really can't answer that question. Uh, I think that we definitely need to give more resources to our hospitals. Um, the problem is, if you look at across the country, so many different areas have different problems. If we got rural America where they don't have enough practitioners, so they, 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 the, what they're dealing with is, is astronomical. Um, it's not just ventilators, it's actual doctors and nurses who are able to go and if they get sick, I mean, the whole towns will shut down. So um, if, if, if I say take the positive wherever you can find the positive. You see something working anywhere, we need to employ it, employ it where we are, and the best ideas should win the day. We need it. I'm going to let this last question go to every single one of you for the for our last question of the night. Dominic from Norfolk asks, "What's something that most people should know about but don't?" Antonia. Hmm. Ooh. Um, most people should know about the Constitution. That's definitely for sure. And we've definitely seen a lot of people who obviously don't know about the Constitution have probably never read it. Um, unfortunately, even our government leaders. So um, I think that's part of it is that we don't have a just simple civic education anymore. And we don't have a lot of people who know the basics of our founding and the rule of law in, in America. Sure, Michael. I would say, and this may be a little odd, but I would say the art of compromise um, you know, I'm a conservative, but That's I, a dirty I, word I, I have a lot of friends who have extreme views, to be honest, on all sides. I'm just going to be honest. And I have always found great value in trying to learn something from everyone. And there are sometimes we argue like hell. But at the end of the day, I think we all should accept that we're trying to accomplish. Well, not all of us, but most of us are trying to accomplish something similar. We're just utilizing different vehicles to accomplish that, to travel down that road together. And I I, saw so compromise. That's something that people should learn about, should focus on and try to replicate in their lives. Very nice. I like that. Tim, what's something pe- most people should know about but don't? Uh, they should know about uh, modern monetary theory where <laughs> somehow America was able to come up with trillions of dollars that dumped into Wall Street and only 6% of it, the money that we have allocated is actually going into the pockets of American citizens. That's all of you out there. And usually, typically, you're going to spend that money and put it right back into those pockets. So they're going to get it all. We've been robbed. Kurt? I'm going to say that... <laughs> Most people are good, you know, despite what you see on TV every day, despite all the noise and all the angst and prognostication and bitterness. Uh, I, I, I see a lot of just really good people right now, particularly 
doing everything that they can to try to improve our situation. People are being charitable and generous and caring and compassionate. And I, uh, there, there's a great song by a country artist named Luke Bryan called Most People Are Good. Uh, and another one from Tim McGraw called Humble and Kind. And I think that better encapsulates the, the American spirit uh, than the noise that we see on TV every day. Tim, where can we uh, where can we see you? Where can, we need things to do over this quarantine besides because we all can't play the piano like Shermichael <laughs> can. Where can we where can we see Coffee with Tim Black and Tim Black at Night? Yeah. Where do we find those things? Well, well, thank you, Clay. I'm on Roku. I'm on Facebook, Twitter as Real Tim Black. You can find me on Instagram, Tim Black at Night. I do a show ten o'clock every day. Nice, Kurt. Where where can we hear where can we hear more of your country music um, expertise and and more references? Yeah, I write a daily morning email tip sheet about country music. Uh, you can sign up for it for free at morninghangover.com. And otherwise, I'm at Kurt Bardella on Twitter, and I'm on MSNBC. Yes, we'll see you on, on Morning Joe on the regular. Antonia, tell us where we can find you. Besides, besides at home, getting preparing a, preparing a child for birth. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, you can see me definitely, uh, def- talking my smack, my daily smack on, uh, <laughs> Twitter, of course, um, on Antonia underscore Okafor, uh, same thing on Instagram. Uh, and yeah, that's usually where you're going to be able to see me. Um, um, but of course you're going to be able to see me soon, hopefully, uh, because this is going to all going to go away and we're going to be able to do, <laughs> have our right. lives that we were right. having before. So, um, yeah, so I, I hope to see you guys this 18 month well. mess that Tim is predicting. How very, very dare you, sure, Michael? I expect to see on your Instagram at some point within the next week uh, a piano recital. But other than that, <laughs> other than that, where can we see and hear and and get your thoughts on things? Uh, definitely on MSNBC, which I actually will be on this weekend. Um, of course, social media, and actually, I'm getting ready to have a new show. I, I hosted a, a co-hosted a digital show last year with Vox Media and Facebook, and I'm getting ready to launch a new show either the end of this month or early uh, first week of next month that will air on ABC Seven, which is ABC in DC, Maryland, Virginia, and it will also stream digitally. And so people can follow me on social media to view the new show digitally. So MSNBC, social media, and my new show on ABC and the DMV market coming soon. Where's your, what's your social media? Uh, oh, it's handle? my name. Sure, Michael. I guess I should have said that, right? That's okay. We'll get it all. We'll get it plastered all over everything that we, that we plaster that we plaster things on. Thank you so much to all four of you: Antonia Okafor, Sir Michael Singleton, Tim Black, Kurt Bardella. Um, I'm going to go read a copy of the Constitution right now, and I'll be back next week. You can send questions to us here at How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along uh, through Twitter or Instagram at Politicon, or you can email them to podcasts at politicon.com and we'll get some of those submitted questions uh, to our panel next week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you guys for joining us. Um, Stay safe, wash your hands, uh, wear your masks and uh, practice your scales. After you listen to today's podcast, here's one to add to your playlist. I'm Christian O'Connell, and I've had this thought for a while. 
What if you took the world's funniest and most interesting people? Hello, I'm Ricky Gervais. I'm Celeste Barber. Some people call me Beyonce. I'm Russell Brand. And asked them to share the stories behind their three most treasured items. No doubt about it, the guitar. I think I know the same chords now as I did when I was 14. From iHeartRadio, this is The Stuff of Legends. Add it to your playlist for free. Just search for Stuff of Legends in your podcast app. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on.